You're listening to Oh My Pod with George Takei and Todd Beaton. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. This has been the bedrock of our democracy. But what happens when some of those people are targeted and undermined by forces both foreign and domestic? When the technology that was hailed as a great connector is weaponized to divide us more than ever before. Whether it's a foreign government launching a cyber war campaign to interfere in our elections, or a domestic propaganda machine spreading disinformation to stoke fear and division, the last few years have given us a crash course in the unintended consequences of free and open access to the Internet. This season of Oh My Pod, we'll explore the ways that technology has been used against us to undermine our democracy and exploit our freedom, how our data is weaponized, how truth itself is called into question, and how fiction takes root as fact with the help of online message boards. And we'll discuss how we can combat these efforts in time for the 2020 election and beyond. Welcome to Season 2 of Oh My Pod. Hi, George. Good to see you again. Thanks, Todd. Good to be back with you in the studio. Yes, excited for Season 2. This season, we'll be exploring hackers, hoaxes, and hate. Oh, my. Each season, we do a deep dive into phenomena of the Internet that make headlines. And this season, it's how misinformation and disinformation get weaponized online to sway elections, sow division, and stoke fear, and what we can do to combat it. So important as we come up to the next year's election. Which is why we're starting off with hackers and the 2016 election interference. George, do you remember when we got word of all the hacks being released the the DNC uh, server was hacked, and you know, John Podesta's emails, and uh, Trump was inviting them to hack uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, emails mm-hmm. right out in the open. Right, he just asked for their publicly their help. Mm-hmm. while he was campaigning. He campaigned on that. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the thirty thousand emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. And then WikiLeaks actually released the hacked data to time with first the Democratic convention. If you remember that that was designed to sow division with the Bernie supporters. Exactly. And then later, the day of the Access Hollywood tape was also the day that the U.S. government announced that this hack had happened. It was Russia that did it. Suddenly, WikiLeaks releases a whole new batch, right? They're weaponizing to time with other events to distract us and to take the media's attention from negative things about Trump. And divide us. It was very divisive. Mm -hmm. And it worked like a charm. Like a drum. Exactly. The way our guest, Dr. Timothy Snyder, puts it in his chilling 2018 book, The Road to Unfreedom, is Russia enabled and sustained the fiction of Donald Trump's successful businessman 
and delivered that fiction to Americans as the payload of a cyber weapon. And, of course, successful businessman was fiction. He has a trail of uh, bankruptcies behind him. That carefully curated fiction is part of what makes Trump the perfect candidate for Russia. He is vulnerable. He is a lie. His whole life and his business is a lie. And anyone who will help support that lie, Trump is indebted to. And therefore, he has to be Russia's puppet. <laughs> exactly. But first, a quick word about our sponsors. You're listening to Oh My Pod. I'm now speaking with Dr. Timothy Snyder, who is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University, author of On Tyranny, as well as last year's The Road to Unfreedom, in which he lays out Russia's years-long effort to undermine Western democracies and export its own brand of fascism through cyber warfare, culminating in the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States in 2016. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Snyder. I'm very glad to be with you. I found The Road to Unfreedom pretty harrowing book. You sort of connected all the dots of all these stories we've been hearing about Russia, about Trump. It was almost like taking the red pill in the Matrix. I saw clearly now, right? What inspired you to write that? So I'm, I am an historian of Eastern Europe, and I spend a great deal of my time in Eastern Europe, and I know East European languages. I got interested in what we now experience as the Trump presidency because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2013, 2014. And in a way, the, what the, the story of the book is telling is how those events are connected. So I'm, I'm living in Europe when there's a revolution in Ukraine and Russia invades. And what I notice then is that the most important part of the Russian war on Ukraine are not the troops on the ground, important as though, though they are. It's, it's, it's not the, 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 the 10,000 or now 12,000 dead, horrible though that is. It's not the 2 million refugees, horrible though that is. It's that they managed to win a cyber war. They managed to set up the conversation in Europe and the United States so that we were all talking about things besides what we should have been talking about, namely that one European country just invaded another European country and took its territory. Instead, we found ourselves talking about uh, depending upon our political preferences, we found ourselves talking about whether Ukraine deserved it because it was fascist or whether Ukraine deserved it because it was Jewish and all kinds of crazy things, basically, but not the thing which was right in front of our faces. And then I was asked to take part in some American conversations about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I realized, wow, in the United States, what people are talking about is not what's actually happening. What people are talking about are basically these these propaganda memes, these these tropes that have been introduced into the media discussion, not from the events on the ground, but from basically from from Moscow. And that's when I started paying attention to this general phenomenon of how the internet can be used to sort us out and to give us the things we want to hear just more so, um, and to, to drive memes into our minds, which then affect the political conversation, which then disable politics and, and, and polarize people. And, I, and so from that point of view, um, I was alert to Trump. And I, I, I recognized, and I think I was the first person to actually write about it, that the same institutions in Russia that had bewildered us during this war were also supporting Mr. Trump 
very early on. I mean, while he was still not even the Republican nominee, um, were supporting him against other Republicans and then, of course, against Hillary Clinton to become president of the United States. And the devices which were used were also the same devices, um, knowing what we want to hear, giving us what we want to hear, pushing us a little bit further in a certain direction, radicalizing us, frightening us, and so on. Yeah, you write that the road to unfreedom is from the politics of inevitability to the politics of eternity. Can you explain those competing uh, brands of politics? I think the the big kind of politics, you know, so big that it's all around us all the time and, and, and overwhelms us. And so we, we don't notice it and take it for granted. I think the big kind of politics now is the politics of time. So what I mean is uh, the politicians who are winning today uh, are the ones who have persuaded us that the future is irrelevant or the future doesn't really exist. Mr. Putin is a very good example of this. Mr. Trump is a very good example of this. Mr. Trump keeps us pinned down in a kind of eternal present where we're also either elated or you know disgusted that we focus on the last thing that's happened. There's an occasional gesture of nostalgia toward the past, but basically the future has completely gone away. So what, what I tr- the way I try to explain this is by looking at how the politics of time has changed since, let's say, 1989, since the year when communism came to an end. The first move in the West reacting to that was to say, history is over, there are no alternatives, capitalism wins, capitalism has to bring democracy. That's what I call the politics of inevitability. It's inevitable that the way things are is going to lead to more good things. We don't have to consider that the, the train might leave the tracks, You know, whether the train's going to stay on the tracks, we know where it's going. And of course, what that means is that none of us is responsible. If capitalism is out there doing all the work for us, then we don't actually have to be good citizens because somehow, inevitably, it's all going to sort itself out. And there's a Republican version of this. There's also a Democratic version of this. The politics of eternity is what you get after the politics of inevitability uh, plays itself out. It can play itself out in a couple of ways. One of them is that is a shock, like the, fi- the financial crisis of 2008, for example, for some people, or the election of Mr. Trump in 2016 for other people, or it can play itself out because of inequality. The whole politics of inevitability story is a story of progress. It, 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 it suggests that everything is automatically going to get better. But if you don't do anything about capitalism, you know, then what capitalism actually does, among other things, is it creates massive inequalities. And massive inequalities, which you've experienced in the U.S., growing inequalities of wealth and income, mean that people can't move around. It means that people are stuck in the kinds of lives they have. They don't have social mobility. And so for that reason, the story of inevitability stops making sense. And that brings us to this politics of eternity. What the politics of eternity is, is rather than saying there's one future and it's good, it says there's no future. You know, it loops politics back into the past or it loops politics into the present using using the technology which was supposed to make us smarter. It makes us dumber. It focuses on the latest outrage, um, the latest hope, whatever it might be. But it keeps us from thinking about the future. Um, it becomes a kind of politics of us and them where if anything is wrong, it's not because of policy, because we've all forgotten about policy. It's because someone else is coming. And politics then becomes this kind of eternal contrast, this eternal conflict between us and them. You know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, we're innocent, they're guilty. Everything that's happening in the world can be can be reduced to that. And that's that's more or less where we are, where we are now. So the, the politics of time is shifting from this inevitability idea, you know, which is 
Bush, Clinton, Obama in different ways to this eternity, eternity idea, which is which is Putin and Trump, drilling us into this eternal present, clearing the future entirely out of our minds and occasionally giving us a dose of nostalgia for the past. And so can you explain why sort of dismantling the, even the concept of truth is important to the politics of eternity? Yeah, that's ab- it's absolutely crucial. And I'm glad you asked that because in the background to everything that I'm saying, there are, you know, there are, there are big structural trends. One of them I suggested already, which is growing inequality of wealth and income. If there's growing inequality of wealth and income, the eternity politicians are, are going to win because they're the ones who come on the scene and have an explanation of why everything is going wrong. But it's an explanation that is, uh, is entirely false. Basically, it's an explanation that it's somebody else's fault and we don't actually need to have any policy for it. But if there's complete social immobility, if people are stuck, like people, like a lot of people understandably felt in the U.S. in 2016, they're going to vote for somebody who gives them this kind of vision. Um, and then the other thing which is in the background, which is so important and it's overlooked, is the death of local news. This is true, you know, first in Russia. Now it's unfortunately coming true in the United States. As people lose local news, as they lose contact with reporters who are actually writing about things they care about, you know, whether it's like the high school basketball team or whether it's water pollution or whatever, as that goes away, as unfortunately it it, it has in the U.S., then people start to think about politics as something distant and far away and as abstract and polarizing. It all becomes national. It all becomes ideological. And from there, it's a pretty short step to politicians who are good using media, especially the internet, pushing narratives which are just about how we feel about things. Because the problem is that when we lose the factual background, then how we feel about things is the only thing that's left. And the people who are good at manipulating how we feel about things, you know, personally or with the help of technology, and Mr. Trump is good at both, then are going to rise to the top of politics. So the politics of eternity says that facts don't matter at all. Um, There really is no truth. There's only how you feel. And of course, how you feel is that you want to be with us. And you also feel that you're afraid of them. And then this can go on forever. And he discredits the press, calls them the liars, even though he's the liar. Yeah, that's the mechanism, which is tried and true. The first thing that you do is that you yourself generate a whole lot of fake news. And the second thing you do is you, you then claim it's the journalists who are generating the fake news. And the third thing you do is you then try to govern from feeling or from spectacle, right? So you, you, since no one, no one believes anything anymore and everyone's doubting everything all the time, spectacle wins. Dramatic emotions win. It's literally what Hitler did. You know, calling journalists who report facts, the folks find the enemies of the people is literally what what Hitler did. These are things which should shock us into complete attention when we hear phrases like that. The truth, of course, is the opposite, that if you if you don't have journalists, you can't be a people because in order to be a people, you have to have a common basis of factuality, which allows us, even as we disagree about goals and values naturally, to have something to which we can return and agree upon and take for granted as a basis of politics. The journalists, I mean, I I think are the heroes of our time, but at the very least, the journalists are the friends of the people, because if you don't have journalists, you end up very quickly not being a people at all. And so obviously, Trump loves to claim credit for fake news, the term, um, but it's right out of the Putin playbook, right? 
Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, his, his claiming that he invented the term fake news is itself fake news. <laughs> you know that very term fake. Its local origin in the 2010s is in Russia and in Ukraine. Um, in the Russian language and in the Ukrainian language, that term fake, although it sounds English, is it was used in, in the narrow technical sense of a false piece of information that is presented to look like news. And in that sense, in the Russian and Ukrainian languages, it was used um, abundantly during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example. But it existed before that. So the direct borrowing seems to be from Putin to Trump. But the idea, right, that you're going to call the real journalists fake, that, of course, is an older idea. And the fascists in the 1920s and 1930s, as I already mentioned, were using it in, in that sense. Um, the Goebbels and Hitler and the Nazis in general talked about Lügenpresse, which in English is fake news. And as far as Putin's cyber warfare that ultimately resulted in the election of Donald Trump, he really started in Europe, right, before? Can you explain how, how he sort of deployed that, um, starting with Brexit or even earlier through our election? Yeah, it's, it's, a story, it, it, it's a story that begins in Russia itself. One of the things I was trying to do in Road to Freedom is to show how what is happening to us actually has happened before, and it's been happening for several years. And if we look at it as a general phenomenon that happens to people, as opposed to something special that happens to us, you know, we can maybe calm down and figure out what we should do. So it begins in Russia itself. What, what happens in Russia is that the people on top, um, the, the selected oligarchs, Putin and the people around him, realize that th they need to govern from fiction. Um, they need to govern from fiction because if you're going to be a handful of oligarchs um, controlling the nation's resources, laundering money abroad, having tens of billions of dollars and so on, you have to have a story about how nothing can be different than it is. And the story that the Russian leadership comes up with is quite intelligent and interesting and new. What they say is basically, yes, we're incredibly corrupt, um, but everybody is incredibly corrupt. Uh, the whole world is like this, you know, the, in the, and the whole world might makes right. In the whole world, there's no truth. And so then Russian media internal to Russia is set up to show that it, Britain, the U.S., the European Union are all basically like Russia. And so they, they, they exaggerate upon, you know, the, the very real examples of how things can go wrong in our countries. But the second step is if that's going to be your, your strategy to rule at home, you, you then in your foreign policy try to make the world or at least Europe and the U.S., a little bit more like that. And it turns out that this is, thanks to the Internet, this is not particularly hard. It's not particularly hard to swing public opinion, just you know, half a point, one point, two points in some direction, which then leads to completely chaotic responses. So what the Russians do is not, they don't have a story that they're trying to tell so much as they look for local things which make people edgy or upset, and then they try to make those things worse. They try to make people more upset about all these things. Whether And so when they work against the European Union, as they've been doing for a solid six years now, they, they you know, depending upon what demographic they're talking to, they say refugees are a huge problem. Refugees are terrorists. Or they say gypsies are a problem. Jews are a problem. Gays are a problem, right? They have this targeted messaging. And then they, and then they associate all the things that they know people are afraid of, thanks to social media. They have that data. They associate the things people are afraid of with the European Union. So you should hate the European Union because it's bringing you all these gay Jewish gypsies and their refugees and so on, right? So 
that's a general and ongoing project to disrupt the European Union, because the European Union is the thing next door to Russia, which shows that actually politics of a different kind really is possible. And, you know, Americans you know, don't like to ever hear we're in second place, but the European Union is actually more important to Russia than, than, than we are. The Brexit thing is an example of the general attempt to divide Europe, because nothing divides Europe more than countries leaving it. So all of that has been happening for five years, right? The, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russian attempt to break up the European Union, the Russian intervention on one side of the Brexit debate, all of that has been happening before we get to the Russian intervention in, in the United States, which is at you know, the end of the story. But it's really part of a much larger story. And of course, Mr. Trump is ideal for them because, he, I mean, as he, as he does every day, he performs just the way they want him to perform. It's not just that he implements their foreign policy as best he can. It's also that the way he comports himself leads people to the conclusion that law, truth, and so on must just be jokes, which is their ultimate aim. So you talk about Twitter bots, obviously advocating for leave uh, but then advocating for Trump and undermining trust in Hillary. And then they hacked the DNC, right? And can you talk about that process, exactly what they did? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the Russians had several different things going on at the same time. They had uh, they sent an advanced team of, you know, of actual human beings to come to the United States and try to sort out what the what the vulnerabilities were. That was reported in the that was actually reported in the Russian press before it appeared in our press and and the Mueller report. Their secret services, both their military intelligence as well as the FSB, uh, were running operations that involved um, penetrating the 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 servers of um, the both the Democratic National Convention, but also the Democratic Party, which works to elect candidates around the country, as well as the email accounts of individual Democratic politicians. So that's those, that's the second thing. And then the third thing is the social media campaign, where uh, largely out of something called the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russian humans set up Russian bots and also work themselves to create a kind of replicate internet or replicate political internet in the U.S., where you had Texas separatism sites and you know you had sites which pretended to be the Republican Party in in Tennessee, you had sites which pretended to be African-American activists and so on, a kind of whole replicate of our own internet, which drew people, including very important people like Kellyanne Conway or like Michael Flynn or like um, the president or the future president himself into their stories and into their into their tropes. So to separate these things out, what the, the server stuff is incredibly important for traditional media, because what happens is that once the Russians have control of of the, the emails from the Democrats, they can selectively release them and along with a spin. And what that does is that it drives the news cycle of traditional media because on in print, radio and TV, everybody feels like they have to cover this latest dropped bomb of democratic materials. And of course, everyone's drawn to it like flies to honey. No one pays attention to the fact that this is coming from somewhere for a reason. You know, that doesn't get covered until a year later. And no people don't draw enough attention to the fact that it's very strange to have these materials from one side, but not from the other side. The Russians drop uh, democratic emails along with the story that, you know, Hillary Clinton is somehow, you know, selling sex with children in the basement of a DC pizzeria. And so what happens is, strange though it seems, the Access Hollywood story, which is Mr. Trump, you know, saying on tape that he thinks sexual assault is fine, um, 
that gets drowned out. And so one demographic, you know, is paying attention to Access Hollywood. Another demographic, as much as a third of the American population, is paying attention to the pizzeria story, right? And that saves him, you know. So the timing, the, the, the controlling these emails and the ability to drop them at certain moments uh, it saves Mr. Trump, keeps his candidacy going. So they're shaping in traditional media including the debates, the whole conversation. And then under the surface, the Russians are using the internet to shape public opinion. What they're, and, and they don't care about being consistent. What they do is they, you know, they tell African-Americans, oh yeah, Hillary's a racist, and try to suppress the African-American vote. And then they tell racists that Hillary loves black people to get them excited to vote for Donald Trump, right? And so on down the line, just motivating or demotivating people, just nudging, you know, nudging here and nudging there, and almost certainly having having an impact that way as well. You know, this, the, the story in 2016 was not what was in those emails. I mean, I challenge anybody at three years distance to pull out anything which was very interesting in those emails. The, the, the thing about 2016, which was which was important, was that a foreign power was actively intervening in our elections by violating um, the privacy of a leading candidate. That was the new story. And that new story, unfortunately, didn't get covered. So you talk about how our local press has been decimated, but also, unlike Russia, we have a huge adoption of the internet here. What made us specifically susceptible? We have this funny combination of openness and lack of factuality. So it's like we've created this huge chamber in the, you know, the social media in which anything is possible, but that chamber is not really filled up with factuality, and that chamber doesn't favor factuality. The, the, the profit model of Facebook, in particular, and social media in general, is to keep us paying attention so that we can leak data about ourselves and therefore create the basis for ever more effective targeted advertising, you know, targeted at us. So the model is to keep our eyes on the screen you know, for as long as possible so that we're looking at these ads, but also generating the raw material that makes these ads possible by our various likes and clicks and so on. And so that in that profit model, um, facts, of course, don't matter. All that, all that matters are emotions and immediate reactions. And that fits very well into a kind of, in the kind of politics that we've been, we've been talking about earlier. So that's one reason we're vulnerable. Another reason we're vulnerable is that a lot of folks in this country, understandably, didn't understand, didn't see how it mattered when their local newspaper went away and they started looking at Facebook instead. You know, a lot of people read and still do read Facebook as if it were the newspaper. They don't understand, you know, that there are algorithms out there which are calculating what they want to see as opposed to what they need to see, which is a completely different category. And they don't understand, you know, we don't still don't really understand that we're being herded into these various categories all the time where, you know, we're with other people who Facebook has decided to have the same kinds of views or backgrounds that, that we do. So the death of local news and the rise of Facebook interact in this way where you get a very large population of people who trust what they see, even though they shouldn't trust what they see. Right. And they don't know why they shouldn't trust what they see. And that's peaking, you know, in 2014, 2015, 2016. I think the statistic is that 44 percent of Americans were getting their news from Facebook. And also at that point, um, you know, there are other statistics like the 20 most widely read news, fake news stories on Facebook in fall 16 were more widely read than the 20 most widely viewed true news stories on on Facebook or that just by way of Facebook, Russia was able to reach more than 100 million 
Americans, right? I mean, these are these are these are astonishing things. So th- these are the sources of our 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 vulnerability. And then there's a there's also just the kind of American reflex that would I this this computer is mine. This living room is mine. You know, this country is mine. It just can't be the case that some other country is doing something to me. You know, that I just don't I just don't believe it. When I was talking to voters in the fall of 2016 about this story, that was a kind of basic response. Like, no, no, like this what I'm looking at, I'm controlling what I'm seeing on my computer. It's what makes me feel right, so it's true. And you know, the, just the very idea that that some other country might somehow be affecting us, I think Americans had had a hard time with that as well. And so, that that was a vulnerability. Dr. Snyder, the point of the book that I found perhaps the most chilling was when you talk about Jack Posobiec, the infamous right wing troll. You write, Jack Posobiec was a follower and retweeter of the same fake Russian site. He filmed a video of himself claiming that there was no Russian intervention in American politics. When the Russian site was finally taken down after 11 months, he expressed confusion. He did not see the Russian intervention since he was the Russian intervention. Can you talk about that phenomenon? Yeah, this is, I mean, this was a deep problem in 2016 because the Russians were very good at providing at providing tropes that people on the American right wanted to hear and just pushing them a little bit further maybe than they would have gone on their own. And then the thing is, once you yourself say it, you know, or in our world, once you yourself tweet it, it becomes part of you. And this is a deeper problem. You know, the the problem that our, our, our minds, our emotions get formed on the internet while we're staring at the screen. And then we as human beings take part in it. You know, every time we retweet something, we're using our bodies, our minds to take part in it. Then we become committed to it. It becomes part of our life. And it's then very hard, right? And Mr. Pasobiak is just one example of this. It's very hard to say, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I was fooled. You know, oh, there are forces out there who are occasionally clever, but more clever than I am. Oh, maybe I should spend less time on the internet or whatever. Nobody ever says that, right? And this is a huge problem because if we're going to have a democracy, democracy depends upon changing your mind, right? I mean, being free means being free to change your mind. And if you haven't changed your mind about anything, you know, since 2016, it's pretty unlikely that you're a free person. Um, it's, it's more likely that your emotions have been shaped by forces beyond you and that you're just being guided along some, some garden path. And you talk about how the politics of eternity triumphs when fiction comes to life, and then you have Donald Trump came from the realm of fiction. I mean, he was just yeah. perfect. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that's like that's a profound change. I mean, a kind of banal way of putting it is you can't tell the difference between entertainment and, and politics, but I think it's it's more profound than that. It's a shift that we see really around the world. I mean, there are a number of people who have literary, artistic, or you know, TV backgrounds who are making their way into politics. And so the story then, you know, the story starts to beat real life. I mean, it starts to beat it up and then it, and then it starts to beat it. And Mr. Trump is a wonderful, unfortunately, example of this. I mean, it, 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 he is a kind of, he is a, he is a walking character. I mean, so, so much so that I think he himself has lost track of the role at some point and has become the role. But I mean, to sort of pick at this at its most, at its easiest point, um, he's elected as a successful businessman. This is just not true, right? I mean, all the data is on the other side. As far as we know, he owes more than half a billion dollars to Deutsche Bank. 
Um, as far as we know, he's bankrupted six companies. As far as we know, he only you know he he gets he gets over you know his 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 various problems in in at least some significant measure because of very mysterious transactions involving Russians in which he doesn't do anything at all. There is no reason to think that he's a successful businessman except that he played one on TV. That's the only reason, and then that becomes his qualification to become president of the United States. Um, which he then is in real life, but as president of the United States, he brings the realm of fiction, you know, in, into politics itself. And from day one, you know, from the, from the moment he starts telling us how big the crowd at the inauguration was, from day one, he's trying to beat down real life in politics too, um, so that so that fiction so that fiction can triumph. It's not just about lying. You know, it's about fiction because some of the things that he like because it, it gets out of your control, right? If you think of the of the Ukraine scandal right now, it's not just that Mr. Trump is lying about Russia, Ukraine, you name it. It's that he actually seems to believe that some of the things he says are true. You know, like so his the, the crazy revisionist account of what happened in 2016, right? That it wasn't Russia; it was actually Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are hiding a server for the Democrats you know, on their territory right now, or that CrowdStrike, which was the subcontractor that the FBI hired to look at the Democrat servers, is actually a Ukrainian company, which is just not true. There's no basis for that whatsoever. But Mr. Trump actually seems to believe this. And then the life becomes fiction because now our foreign policy starts to turn to try to prove that these fictions are true. Our attorney general, who's supposed to be enforcing the law in the United States, is going on these missions around the world where he's talking to other governments about this stuff that we just made up, right? This is a crucial turning point when you move away from a rule of law system to some kind of authoritarian system where the people who are around the leader know that the truth doesn't matter and that the way to become close to him is by imbibing the fictions, taking part in the fictions, spreading, spreading the fictions. What about 2020? Are we less susceptible now? Is there something to be said for the fact that we, we've called it out? I mean, they tried to impact the German and French elections, right? After hours, they failed. Is it, was it because they, they were called out? I mean, what do you think about the United States in 2020? Some Americans are now aware of this, but I have to say I haven't become – I'm not personally aware that people are spending a lot less time with social media. I think Facebook's fixes are so far pretty superficial. I think the, the, the fundamental problem of our not having local news is unfortunately getting getting worse. You're right about France. Um, you know, your other, other governments were able to minimize this operationally. Um, thanks to paying attention to what happened in the U.S. The irony is that our government can't really pay direct, or at least our federal government, can't pay direct attention to it because the beneficiary is the president of the United States. So we haven't even passed a law at the federal level in or, about, about how we should be dealing with this. So we, you know, the, the, the victory the Russians had in 2016 keeps giving them rewards because our political system is now stuck. And among other things, we can't really, we can't really effectively reply to this. But I mean, you're right that it does matter that the that American intelligence organizations and American politicians and American state level election officials basically grasp what happened. But I, I really wish we were better prepared than than we are. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity, neither of those is a preferred sort of state of being. And the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm wondering, okay, there has to be light at the end of the tunnel here. And it came at like the last page. 
Um, can you talk about how you see the right way to move forward? Yeah, yeah. I mean, moving forward itself is is a very crucial concept because when you're when you're stuck in the politics of eternity, you know, either if you like it, it's kind of it's kind of like an addiction. You know, you get your regular daily hit of the stuff that makes you elated. You get your weekly or monthly reminder of how we used to be great and so we're going to be great again, and it's somebody else's fault. You know, you get you you get trapped in that pattern, and what goes away is the future. Or if you hate it. You know, then you're outraged every day and all of your energy goes towards being outraged. Then you forget, OK, I actually should be doing some small things or some big things to make a difference. We have to keep talking about the future. And if you don't think about, you know, not thinking about the future isn't going to make it go go away. And we as a society, we still have incredible resources that, that could be that could be applied to make the future better than it is. The, the concept that I develop at the end of the book in which I spell out a little more length in, in my little book on tyranny is is the politics of responsibility, you know, that that we as citizens, we as non-governmental organizations, um, we as representatives of institutions, we as governments should be able to diagnose some of the basic problems, that there are little things that we can do to make a difference, but that in doing so, we have to accept and believe in and propound ethics. We have to say truth is better than lies. We have to say justice is better than astounding inequality. We have to we have to take ethical positions because if we don't take ethical positions, the politics of eternity with its relentless nihilism and its relentless fiction eventually wears everybody down and exhausts everyone. So politics of responsibility has to start from, hey, I believe the world could be better because I actually believe in these values. And it follows from this that we can do a, B, C, D, and E to, to turn things around, to create an image of the future and start to fill up that image with, with real improvement. I am not a pessimist. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm a historian. I think every, historians think that pretty much everything is possible. I think there's a whole range of good things that can, that can happen as well. But I think they only start to happen when we can, you know, when we take responsibility ourselves for the, 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 the mess that we're in. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Snyder, for talking to us today. Thanks for reading the book. Um, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. I think I'm going to have to give this book to people for Christmas. Good. Glad to hear it. I'm now speaking with Andrea Chalupa, journalist, filmmaker, and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast. Great to have you on, Andrea. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So you were writing about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine well before it was making headlines here, certainly before the 2016 election. What got you interested in that topic? Well, I was studying Ukraine's history since, I would say, university, I majored in history with a focus on Soviet history, and then I studied at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute shortly after college, and then I lived in Ukraine for several months in 2005, following the country's 2004 Orange Revolution, which was a popular uprising that overthrew corrupt election results, um, which which said that Yanukovych, Putin's puppet in Ukraine, um, this politician in in the Kremlin's pocket, uh, was the winner. Those, Those results turned out to be... Uh, false, <laughs> and the people took to the streets until a new election was called, and a pro-democracy, pro-Western candidate won. And so that was sort of the start of Yanukovych and Manafort, uh, their sort of dark arts, pro-Kremlin dark arts 
in Ukraine. When did it become clear to you that Russia could pose a threat to our election in 2016? Well, what we're always saying on Gaslit Nation is and is that Ukraine is a laboratory for Kremlin aggression. So what they test on Ukrainians, from heavy machinery to cyber warfare to hacking the country's electrical grid and hacking election results themselves, all that stuff started first in Ukraine. So What's happened in 2016 with with Paul Manafort, Putin's Darth Vader, coming over and managing Donald Trump's campaign, that was surreal for anybody that followed Ukraine closely. That was a national emergency crisis. And unfortunately, uh, very few people followed Ukraine closely enough or thought our institutions were strong enough uh, to save us. And Paul Manafort didn't get the attention he needed soon enough, and he should not have come anywhere close to a presidential campaign in the U.S., and the big question is, how did, was this allowed to happen in the first place? The Republicans are calling for investigations to understand the origins of the uh, investigation into Kremlin ties around the Trump campaign. But really, the bigger question is, why didn't that investiga- investigation come many years sooner? Can you take listeners through exactly how Russia managed to hack our election and how they strategically weaponized the release of that information? So simply put, Putin has been allowed to get away with aggression for years. He invaded Georgia. He um, was uh, he was un- totally untrustworthy and unethical in Syria. He was deliberately bombing civilians to create a, a massive refugee crisis to flood Europe and further divide Europe. He was funding the Kremlin and, and those around the Kremlin were funding far right leaders across Europe. So long story short, when Putin invaded Crimea and then eastern Ukraine, the West became stronger in passing sanctions, and that was crippling to Russia's economy, which was already suffering from the decline in oil prices because they, they based their budget, their state budget, on the price of oil. It's a gas station dictatorship. And so all of this was putting um, Putin and his core of oligarchs in crisis. And so they, they had to push back. And I think the, the Obama administration was calculating that eventually Putin and his oligarchs would come around and they would start behaving out of their own self-interest. But instead, Putin doubled down and um, got involved uh, essentially through this coalition of corruption that helped bring Donald Trump to power. And that included a lot of Russian oligarch money being funneled to the GOP, congressional races in 2016, um, the NRA being used as a proxy, a Kremlin proxy to um, help boost up a lot of these races and, and, and providing a cover for, for, the, for you know, Maria Butinut to pollinate Kremlin interests among GOP leaders. So all this whole operation was was put in place years before 2016, at a time when the West was finally standing up to Putin. And so this was sort of like an insurance policy that they they clearly had in place and activated as needed to protect their interests and to destabilize the West. Because the Kremlin is very good at, at, at identifying and neutralizing threats. And that's what they've done here. With, with you know by help by helping bring Trump to power, they've they've weakened the United States considerably. And so specifically, what they did was you had I think two teams of Russian hackers go in, infiltrate the DNC. They spent many months inside the DNC. They took not just emails but scores of data, like years of data. And um, they came out and they they clearly they clearly had somebody that understood how American politics works and, and understands the theater. Of, of American political drama, because somebody was able to strategically pick which emails to release and when and how, and knowing how those emails would play out in uh, on cable news and among voters. 
And um, this was done to create great division between Hillary Clinton and um, her opponent in the primaries, Bernie Sanders. That big bomb of the first email release through WikiLeaks, a Kremlin cutout, was done right before the Democratic convention in Philadelphia. And that was done purposely to create this huge explosion to divide the opposition. And it worked. You had Sanders um, supporters protesting inside the halls of the convention and um, a lot of division and a lot of embarrassing details that were leaked, including personal details of major funders of the, of the Democrats and just showing a lot of like division internally. And, and so, and that was all strategically done to, to deeply wound uh, Trump's opponent. And it, and it helped. It worked. A lot of people stayed angry at Hillary Clinton, stayed away from voting for her. And at the same time, there was a lot of harassment of people that were daring to speak out about this and point out what was happening, and including you know, my sister. Your sister, Alexandra Chalupa, she's been on the receiving end of some attacks by Republicans. Can you talk about who she is, why she's relevant now to Republicans? Sure. So my sister is a wonderful American patriot who's the mother of three little girls, and she spent her whole career at the DNC. And as a proud Ukrainian-American, with Paul Manafort coming over running Trump's campaign, she like many of us who followed Ukraine closely, knew exactly what this meant. It meant the Kremlin was managing Trump's campaign. And so she warned anyone that would listen, including Republicans themselves, because this was a national emergency, as we know now, as has been confirmed by the Mueller report and, and, and other credible sources. And, and it, we're just in a dangerous spot right now as a country. And my sister was one of a handful of people that risked her life and career to speak out about it and warn anyone that would listen. And fortunately, now she's being punished for it. Republicans during the impeachment hearing seem to be throwing accusations of divided loyalty, right? I mean, a lot of the people speaking out, and your sister is sort of bearing the brunt of this as well, um, this idea that maybe you're not fully American. Do you want to talk a little bit about that accusation? Yeah, it's, it's heinous. It's beyond, it's beyond disgusting. It's, it's very much an extension of Stephen Miller and this far-right uh, white supremacy nationalism that helped bring Trump to power, and that's and, and white supremacy is something that we that every that no country is immune from. And what what the Kremlin has done is it's awakened that beast through bots and propaganda and by you know funneling money to far right leaders and uniting far right leaders around the world and really strengthening that virus. Under Putin, there's like nationalist march that was launched in Russia that was overtaken by the far right. And, it's, and, and you have videos of immigrants from other parts of the world in Russia being targeted for harassment. And so this is a, this is a virus that we, ha- we already had um, in America. And when these white supremacists unite globally and empower each other globally, of course, you're going to see, um, you're going to see a consolidation of power worldwide among nationalistic far-right autocrats. And it's, it's incredibly dangerous. And what's, what you're seeing now is that they're so emboldened that they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Yeah, they're not hiding it anymore. No, but that's, but that's a phase. That's a phase of authoritarianism coming in. At, at first, it's insidious. At first, it's confusing. At first, it seems morbidly entertaining to many people in the press who are not going to be on the front lines of, of their violence and their threats. And then at, at one point, when they finally come in and consolidate power, then they come out and they have a big coming out party and the violence just escalates from there. So we're, we're at a very dangerous phase of this right now in the U.S. Donald Trump likely will end up getting impeached. 
largely because of this conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine and not Russia, right, that attacked us. How surreal is it for you to hear not only this on the front pages now, but like in impeachment hearings and to have Republicans repeating this conspiracy theory? It's extraordinarily dangerous to try to blame Ukraine for the Kremlin's active war against our country. That is victimizing the victim. Ukraine is a democracy that is a shining light in a part of the world, in the post-Soviet space, that desperately needs success stories. Ukraine is doing extraordinarily well, given what it's up against. And it's being invaded right now by the second most powerful military in the world. And that invasion has just turned more and more brazen under Donald Trump. So the entire time when Donald Trump was withholding promised military aid to our ally Ukraine, Ukrainian soldiers, men and women on the front lines were being killed. This is horrendous, horrendous. It's like he's furthered a humanitarian crisis. It's like him and Putin are completely on the same side here. And in addition to that, you've seen Kremlin propaganda amplified by American far-right propaganda attacking credible anti-corruption reformers in Ukraine who are risking their lives, risking their careers to take on the, the deep, deep systemic corruption in Ukraine to try to further it towards Western standards. This has confirmed what, what I've been screaming about since 2016, which is Putin has invaded America through Trump. And so how do we halt the rise of authoritarianism? Well, you need to engage. You cannot hide from it. Because if you self-censor yourself, if you dis- if you try to disappear and hide under a rock, it's going to come for you. Because what happens is societies that succumb to authoritarianism, societies that succumb to kleptocracy, they become prisons. And you know, if you look at Russia today, Putin is basically the head of a mafia state that's suffering greatly. So even though Putin is winning all these victories abroad by destabilizing democracies and breaking apart the Western alliance, and he's also encroaching um, deeper into Africa um, and and, stable, and, and, uh, and working on the side of a lot of bad guys in Africa. He's, he's creating a lot of damage, and, 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 but also making a lot of headway for, for, for Russian interests abroad. But at the same time, back home, you have anti-corruption protests that have been growing stronger and stronger over time. So Putin has a crisis back at home. His his numbers, his popularity numbers are are slipping because Russians are living in extreme poverty. And so Putin's not helping himself at all. And so the strategy to confronting this is always, always like, you know, follow the example of the Russian people. You've, you've got to show up to protest. You've got to run for office. You've, you've got to speak out even, even if the stakes are high. And on Gaslit Nation, we have a great action guide that walks you through everything, the heart and soul on how to stay engaged. And you can find that on GaslitNationPod.com. Great. So as we approach 2020, what is your warning um, as far as Russian interference now? Well, it's going to be the same playbook in 2016. You're going to see a lot of bots on the internet, a lot of fake news being churned out by these troll factories. In fact, at the start of 2017, Russia's um, defense minister, he uh, gave a speech to the representative body there in Moscow, and he gave a speech saying that the, you know, that the plan for propaganda was that they were going to make it more sophisticated. That was in 2017, right after Trump had just been elected with the help of Russian propaganda. And so their strategy was to double down and improve their tactics. So 
they know that we're on to them. And I think that they are going to be, I, I do, I do sadly think that in 2021, 2022, we're, we are going to be dissecting some new strategies they used in 2020 because they need Trump to win. They need Trump to stay in power because if a Democrat is sworn into office in January 2021, what do you think one of the first things that Democratic president is going to be doing? Sanctioning Russia, bringing back a united Western alliance. So just like Trump needs to stay in power, because if he loses this election, as the Mueller report said, the only thing that, that's keeping him from being indicted is some, some just a few decades old DOJ memo. So Trump and Putin need to steal the 2020 election in order to avoid accountability and stay in power and further their, their interests. And so they're going to fight like hell. I do, so it's going to be a lot of the same playbook we saw in 2016. I do believe Hillary Clinton, when she says that Tulsi Gabbard could be put forward as a spoiler third-party candidate, I think Tulsi Gabbard, like Trump, is walking, talking, Kremlin propaganda. She makes things up. She invents things, just like the Kremlin. And she whitewashes the crimes of Assad, and who's a big um, Putin ally. And I think all American voters need to commit themselves that no matter who the Democratic candidate is, we have to get that person elected and we have to unite behind that person. And we need to challenge ourselves to knock on hundreds of doors because knocking on doors are the most effective way to get the vote out. And we have to commit ourselves fully, even if it means taking time off from work, whatever we can afford to do. We need to fight like hell in 2020 to get the, a Democrat elected. Um, because it doesn't matter which candidate, but one of the top candidates wins in 2020, that candidate will stop the bleeding, will stop the bleeding. And that's what we need right now. So if it's not your first choice, if it's not your dream progressive candidate, we then consider this as a candidate just to, just to be a transition candidate until we can like stabilize our country and put an end to this. Because this has been a, a, the, the stolen election of Donald Trump with the help of the Kremlin was an act of war, is a terrorist act. And ask Ukraine, because they've been living under this for years. So you have a film out this year, which you wrote and produced, right, called Mr. Jones? Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And, and are there lessons from that time um, that we can learn today? Yes. So I wrote and produced Mr. Jones, which was directed by Agnieszka Holland, who has done a ton of gorgeous films and um, the film is the story of a, uh, based on a true story of an independent young Welsh journalist named Gareth Jones, who risks his life to expose Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. And he's ultimately killed, as research shows, by um, Soviet secret police. But um, his work lives on in a book called Animal Farm. So you have the story of how the truth can't be killed. The, the fearless reporting that Gareth did it goes on to inform other other great works. And what you see is uh, the writer George Orwell in the film writing Animal Farm, and those words narrate Gareth's journey to get the truth out into the world. And um, it stars James Norton, this great British actor, as, as Gareth Jones, and also Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret on The Crown. She plays a fearless reporter in Moscow. And then Peter Sarsgaard, uh, the, the great Peter Sarsgaard, plays um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Moscow bureau chief of The New York Times, who was in the pocket of the Kremlin and helped Soviet censors cover up Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Oh my gosh. And so it's this, hor it's this incredible true story on how Kremlin aggression, Kremlin corruption and propaganda depends on Western corruption. So, so like, like we said before about the lesson of 2016, 
if Western journalists and, and the powers that be had been paying attention and taking this threat seriously, Trump might have been stopped. And the film, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it. And I, it's going to be out in the U.S. in early 2020. And I encourage everyone to go see it. And you can follow Mr. Jones underscore film on Twitter to find out where it's coming near you. Great. Well, good luck with that film. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for all the great work you guys do. All right. Thanks a lot, Andrea. So hearing these stories about what happened in 2016, it's hard to be optimistic that the same will not happen in 2020. What did you think about how Dr. Snyder sort of framed how we we move forward? This is happening right now. The uh, Zelensky call and then the people that are backing up the fact that that did happen. I heard it, Sondland and all the people that, uh, other staffers that heard that conversation, that needs distracting if they're really trying to help uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Dr. Snyder talks about uh, ethics. It talks about uh, integrity. I mean, we have to have people that subscribe to the fundamental core values of what this uh, government is all about. Due process is a central pillar of our democracy. And fact-based evidence-based decision-making. And then you move on. You get the facts, mm-hmm. the truth. And what you can't get it when, you're, when the president is lying every day. And that's the politics of responsibility exactly. that Dr. Snyder talked about. Exactly. And then you move on, uh, guided by those ideals, by those uh, fact-based principles. That ethics matter. And, and we need leaders mm-hmm. to not only personify that, but to give voice and activate that, to galvanize people with principles, ideals. And that's why, I mean, children are our future. And the important thing is to now reach them and prepare them to become voters of the future. That's the future-based optimism that I have. And that's part of the point that he's making, right, that the future does matter. We need to accept that policies matter and ultimately voting matters, the truth matters, right? Values and leadership to give uh, those um, uh, power, uh, those va- values, energy and personification. Are you optimistic for 2020? Uh, I think it's important to keep your uh, eyes fixed on what we as Americans are all about, uh, the ideals, the values of this country, ethics, principles, and integrity to, to those uh, values. There you go. This has been Oh My Pod. Make sure to tune in next week when we'll discuss the ways that online tools are being exploited and weaponized here in the United States to change our hearts and minds and impact our elections. George Takei's Oh My Pod is produced by Todd Beaton, Elizabeth Friedman, Evan Brechtel, Lorenzo Tioni, Jay Quo, and Tom Garudo. Special thanks to Gotham Podcast Studios.